whether in Brentwood or Franklin, are worshiping online with us. It's good to be together in this act of worship, even this morning. I want you to take out your Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Take out your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, a short section this morning. We're coming to the to the end of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We have about one month left in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we've taken these, these next eight verses on spiritual warfare, the armor of God, and we've broken these eight verses down into three messages. We're going we're gonna to take it slow right here at the end because this is very, very important. I can only imagine what it must have felt like for the church at Ephesus to, to hear that Paul's letter had arrived to them from Rome. The anticipation they must have felt, the excitement that they must have felt. They gathered on Sunday morning that the letter was about to to be read. I I can only imagine the deep joy they must have felt when they heard the first half of the book. Paul wrote about all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ chosen from the foundation, before the foundation of the world adopted his God's sons and daughters. They were, this was God's fresh word to them through the mouth of the apostle Paul. It's like, this is written for us. We're chosen. We're redeemed by the son. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our eternity is secure. What deep joy that must have been for the church. And I can only imagine that the compelling unction then that they felt as they heard Paul's exhortation in the second half of the book, chapters four through, through six, Paul's exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of what you've been called, to live so much out of God's love and care for you in response to his incredible blessings in your life that you, that you would walk, that you would walk faithfully and that you would walk obediently in all walks of life, all aspects of life, that you would live life to the fullest of who you've been called to be in your marriages. Bill Brown and Michael helped us to unpack it. And with your kids, Lloyd helped us to unpack it. And our parents and, and then in our work, in our work relationships where we were last week, the, the exhortation to go now live that way in light of whose you are, in light of who you are in Christ. And I can only imagine then what they must have felt when they heard the word that starts our text for today, this little short word, finally. Finally, like, okay, Paul's coming to the end of the letter. This is the first time I've heard it. Paul, Paul's coming to the end. What, what is he going to say at the end? What is it that he's held to the end for, for us that this must be and it is very important to us? And then, of course, how, how sobering, it must have been to, to hear the words that followed that word. And, and we find ourselves in verse 10, picking up right there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Sobering, isn't it? 
Hey, church, listen, finally, here we are at the end. Church, you got to get this. We have a very real spiritual enemy who engages war against us, who engages us in a spiritual battle for a very specific spiritual purpose. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my dad and one of his good friends, a man named Bobby Field. Bobby played football for the University of Arkansas back in the late 60s, playing football for the Arkansas Razorbacks. That's pretty awesome in my book. I'm a huge Razorback fan, so I like this guy right from the start. And since that time at Arkansas, he's been a football coach. So he coached with Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama. He coached at Mississippi State University, and he spent the last 35 years, which unheard of to spend that long in one place in the coaching business, but he spent the last 35 years at UCLA, 22 years as a defensive coordinator and assistant head coach, and the last 13 in the athletic director's office. Bobby, Coach Field, he, he knows football. He knows coaching and he knows football. I love college football, so I'm asking him all kinds of questions. It was amazing to hear him tell stories, amazing to hear him talk about games and players, strategy and leadership. And when I left my dad and, and Bobby and, and came back to, to Nashville, it dawned on me that that Bobby has developed a very specific skill over all these years as a coach. He's developed a keen sense for knowing his opponent. He spent all his years, literally decades, as a defensive quarter studying the other team, right? Their strengths, their tendencies, their schemes, all the ways that they were going to try to beat UCLA, decades studying the other team and then preparing his team for what they were about to face. Knowing your opponent is critical to the outcome of the game. You don't have to know football to understand that the teams that win are the teams that know their opponents very well. And Coach Field's teams won a whole, whole lot of football games. Paul In Ephesians chapter 6, it's like he's the coach in the locker room. And he's preparing us for battle, for spiritual battle. And lesson number one from Coach Paul is you have to know your enemy. You've got to know who we're up against. Lesson number one is not, hey, here's what we need to go do. Here's our strategy. It's not, hey, here's how we're going to fight. No, lesson number one is all about the other team. It's about knowing who we are fighting. So we're going to take our time today in these three verses, and we're going to get to know the enemy. And we're going to do that by answering these three questions. Here's my outline for today. Who is the enemy? What are his schemes? And why does he come against us? That's what we're going to unpack today. We'll start with question number one. Who is our enemy. And Paul identifies the enemy in the text. He names the enemy in the text. He, he says that our enemy is the devil, verse 11, and his dark forces. That's verse 12. And then Paul elaborates on that just a bit. He, he makes it clear to us that our, our enemy is not human, not flesh and blood. So certainly to make us aware that our fight is not against one another, but it's also to tell us something more about our actual 
enemy. Our actual enemy is a spiritual being, beings that operate in a spiritual realm. Our battle is against an enemy that we cannot see. Now, we live in a world today that, that operates, or at least tends to operate, at one of two extremes when it comes to the devil and to demons. That's the word that the Bible uses most often to describe or to talk about the dark forces or the demonic forces that are at Satan's direct command. So, so the devil and his demons, there are two extremes. I think C.S. Lewis was the first to identify this about our culture in his book, The Screwtape Letters. One of the extremes dismisses the idea of evil spirits altogether. So if, if I can't see it, if I can't touch it, if it's not a visible reality in our physical world, then it doesn't exist. It's total nonsense. That's one extreme. The other end of the spectrum, the other extreme in our modern world is an excessive fascination with evil spirits. So we have books and movies and TV shows and and all sorts of video games that, that have these characters in them that move in and out of the spiritual realm. Dark forces that affect the lives of real human beings. That's the character that they portray. It's certain that there is a fascination with evil spirits in our culture today as well. And typically people live toward one end of those two extremes. But there's a problem with those two extremes. And the problem is that neither extreme paints a biblical picture of this spiritual reality. Neither extreme does that. This book right here is all about the immaterial realities that affect our material world, right? That's what it's all about. The spiritual realities that affect the lives of humans for good and for evil. Now, maybe it's easier to embrace the spiritual realities that affect us for good, all the things that are true about God. But, but this book, it also goes to great lengths to make known to us the spiritual realities that are in fact evil and that come against us. So you got the Old and the New Testament both affirming the existence and the reality of our enemy. He is called the devil as he is here in Ephesians 35 times. He's called Satan 52 times. Those are just two of about 20 names that are used for our enemy in the scriptures alone. He's found in the earliest pages of the Old Testament, earliest days of human history. He is found wielding his influence over the lives of King David even and Job, many others in the books that are written by the prophets. Every single author in the New Testament makes reference to our enemy. This is a very real present enemy. Of course, maybe the greatest evidence that we have a real enemy is is the fact that Jesus Christ speaks of him so often. Jesus Christ makes reference to the enemy, to the devil, to Satan 25 times in his three-year ministry. Those are the times that we have recorded for us in this book. Jesus has multiple encounters with demons that are well-documented in the gospel accounts. And at least twice, at least on two occasions, Jesus he comes into direct contact with Satan himself. The very beginning of his ministry, when he spent 40 days being tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, and then again at the very end of Jesus' ministry on 
the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane where Satan torments him with such force that Jesus' sweat is falling like drops of blood. The Bible is clear. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He has certain principalities, rulers and authorities, powers that are at his direct command. He operates in a spiritual realm, one that we can't see, but he is no less real. And he and his demonic forces have incredible influence over the physical world. And while we can't be dogmatic about this, the Bible does give us some clues as to the origin of Satan and his demons. In Genesis chapter 1, God looks at all that he's created, everything that he's created in the physical realm, including human beings, and everything that he's created in the heavenly realm or the spiritual realm, including spiritual beings or angels. He looks at all of that creation, the heavens and in the earth, and he calls it good. It's all good. There's nothing that exists on earth or in the heavens that isn't good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, just two chapters later, and we see that evil is present on the earth. That evil's present in the form of a certain, Satan is in the form of a serpent, tempting Eve, the first woman, to sin. So at some point between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, there has been a rebellion among the spiritual beings in heaven. A rebellion among the angels such that some have become evil, so evil in fact that they are already wielding their influence on the first two people that live on the earth. The New Testament speaks about this in two places, Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2. And in both cases, the authors make clear to us that these angels, they describe these angels who forfeited their goodness, by rebelling against God, and were expelled from heaven because of their sin. It's possible that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 speak to the fall of Satan as well. And when we take what we have in the New Testament, possibly even the Old, and then we add to that the clear implication from Matthew chapter 25 that that these fallen angels, now called demons, were followers of Satan, their leader. This, this fuzzy picture that's in our heads that we know very little about, it begins to come into focus. Satan, an angel of God, likely one of the most high-ranking angels that existed. We see in the scriptures that there is some structure to the level or the priority or the roles of angels. We see some structure in that. This is likely one that was very high up in angelic or spiritual being type leadership. So so we have Satan, an angel of God, likely very high up angel of God who was created by God, who wanted to be like God, which by the way, is at the root of all sin. He wanted to be like God. He believed that he could be like God, prideful enough to believe that he could be like God, influential enough to carry a whole group of angels with him. And together they rebel against God's authority, against God's 
goodness. Their sin separates them from God's presence, just like ours does. And the earth then becomes a spiritual battlefield. The earth and everything that was good created in it becomes a spiritual battlefield. It became the place where evil would nip at the heels of God's redemptive purpose. In a place where Christians, where you and I would struggle against the schemes of the enemy. What are the schemes of the enemy? That's question number two. What, what are his schemes against us? And I want you to see this first, and this is just Bible study 101, but I want you to notice in verse 11, Notice that the word schemes is plural. Just notice that. It's it's not scheme. Paul says schemes, which is important to us because it helps us to know that there are many ways that the devil comes against us. There are many ways that he schemes against human beings. In, In fact, if we were just to take all the accounts that we have in the scriptures about the ways that Satan schemes against real live human beings, if we were just to take those and start to unpack them, it it would take us the rest of the day. It literally would take us the rest of the day just to unpack all the different ways that Satan schemes against people that are found even just here in this book. So, So we can't do that, but I do want you to get just a little taste of this. And one of the ways to get a taste of, the way, of how Satan schemes against us is just to listen to some of the things that the Bible calls him, some of his names. Here are just a few. He is the evil one, the great dragon, the slanderer, the roaring lion, the destroyer, the god of this world, the ruler of this world, the tempter, the murderer, the liar, the accuser, the solicitor, the adversary. He is persecution, he is perversion, he is destruction, he is death. You can imagine all the ways that he earned those descriptions. But I would suggest that there is one thing that is core to our enemy. One common thread that weaves its way through all his schemes, and that is deception. He is a deceiver. In fact, Revelation 12, 9 says it just that way. Satan is the deceiver of the world. 1 John 3, 8 says, children of God, you and me, make sure no one deceives you for the devil has been a sinner from the very beginning. John 8, 44, the devil cannot stand on truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's schemes are built on deception. He's shrewd, he's cunning, and he's crafty. That's the word that's used to describe him in Genesis chapter 3. The very first account we have of Satan scheming against a human being when he lures Eve into sin. And you know it's interesting in that account, and we've studied it in here, but Satan is not menacing toward Eve. He's not. He's not intimidating. He he comes 
to her like, like a helper, like, like a friend who would like to help. He, he's reassuring, even comforting in his words. He wants to help Eve, show Eve what God is really like. He, he wants to help Eve become like God. He, he wove his lies with a layer of truth, didn't he? Klein Snodgrass says this about evil. He says, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Rarely looks evil until we see it in the end. It gains entrance, entrance to us by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And Eve took the bait, didn't she? She doubted the goodness of God and she acted on it. Listen to me on this. When something enters your mind that causes you to question the character of God or the trustworthiness of his word, you can bet that it's the strategy of the enemy. Anything that flows into your mind that causes you to doubt the goodness of God, his trustworthiness, the, the promises of his word. Anything that flows through there, you, you can bet that that is the strategy of the enemy towards you. We're, we're lured into sin in the same way that Eve was. Only I would add this, Satan is far more deceptive today than he was then. You see, Satan's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing like God. He, he gets better every single day. He has been honing his craft since the garden, and he was pretty good then. So he's been honing his craft for millennia. He's had six billion people now to practice on, and he's become, you know, the greatest philosopher, theologian, and psychologist ever ever to have presence on the earth. It's Malcolm Gladwell that writes, if you've got some level of talent, it takes 10,000 hours to become an outlier, to become expertise in that in the field of sports or academics, 10,000 hours and you can be Tiger Woods or you can be Peyton Manning or, or you can be whatever. It's like, how about 10,000 years? I think Peyton Manning would be a pretty good quarterback if he had 10,000 years with the Denver Broncos, don't you think? Be incredible. Satan is a pretty good deceiver. And his schemes are perfectly tailored for you and for me. I was thinking about this in my own life. How is it that Satan and his forces try to deceive me? What lies do they try to make me believe in my own unique personality? How, how, how do they lie? What lies do they whisper in my ears? And here's one that came to mind. There are many for me that... One that came, came to mind immediately is, it sounds something like this. It sounds like, you don't need God for this. You don't need God for this. God can be trusted in all kinds of things, sure, but you got this one. Fine on your, this one's too small for God. It's, it sounds something like that. That's, that's the thought that kind of starts circling in my head. I'll give you an example of that. I was, uh, uh, my daughter Lily and I got into it this week. We had some conflict. She was trying to tell me how she felt. She's overwhelmed, stressed, frustrated, angry. And 
I took it like I was the one who had made her feel that way. So this, we kind of heated up and, and uh, we decided to take a break for a minute. And, and I, I don't know if this is Satan directly. I don't. I, I don't know if it's his, his demonic forces. I, I don't know if it's just my own sin nature. But the subtle deception that kind of started finding its way into my mind, it sounds like the enemy. This is what started the refrain that started in my head. Hey, you got this. You got this figured out. She's 14. You know, you need to help her understand this. God made you your dad, layer of truth. God made you your dad. Yeah, you got the wisdom in this situation. You don't need to hear her out on this one. You apologize all the time. She needs to apologize here. Don't don't think about it. Don't pray. Just just act on it. That's what starts kind of going through my head. So much so that my wife Hillary called me. I ran Emma somewhere and was coming back to talk to Lily. My wife Hillary called me and, and she said, hey, listen, can I tell you something about Lily that might help you in your conversation with her in a few minutes? You know what I said? No. No, I got this figured out. That's what I said. Oh, it's arrogant, isn't it? Doggone it. So I went back and I sat down with her. You know, even though my words were true and even though... I was gracious um, to to a degree, at least with my daughter, Lily. I want you to know this. I crushed her spirit in that moment. I crushed her. Oh, God, kills me. I just crushed her. I did exactly what Lloyd was talking about two weeks ago. Provoked her to anger, missed her, hurt her. Unfortunately, Lily has mustered the courage, mustered up enough courage to tell me that I had when she told me that I had the Spirit of God at work in me, helped me to see it and, and helped me to see the lie that I had believed, that, that I had it all under control, that I had it all figured out. What lies does the deceiver whisper in your ears? What do they sound like for you? It'd be a great application coming out of today, a great so what for you to take and just think about what, what does it sound like to me? A little truth that just kind of gets woven in with some deception and it gets me off course. What does it sound like? Maybe it sounds to you like some of the lies that I have heard in my 15 years as a pastor. Here are a few of them. Maybe some of these will resonate with you. God's going to be okay if I do this. God doesn't want me to feel this way. God doesn't want me to be hurting. God wants me to be happy. This is too big for God or or the opposite. This is too small for God. How can God be good and allow this? If God were good, he'd fix this. If God were good, he would heal me. How can God like me if nobody else does? How can God love me if I hate myself? I am not enough. I have just done too many things wrong. Just too many things wrong. It's just, it's beyond me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I have done everything right. I don't deserve this. Sure, God's faithful. He's just not faithful to me. Bible contradicts itself. Church doesn't care about me. If God can be trusted, why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have a friend? 
it's easy to believe the lies of the deceiver. He knows just what to say to you. Which leads us to the last question. Why is he so against us? Question number three, why why does he come against us so hard? And to answer that question, I want you to turn back just a couple of pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter one. Just look over at Ephesians chapter one for just a minute. The, The answer to this question is found back in the place where Paul began the letter. Three times in Ephesians chapter one, Paul answers the why question. He answers it in verse 6, in verse 12, and again in verse 14. Well, why did God choose us? Why did God adopt us as his sons and daughters? Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, because it brings him glory to choose us. Well, why does the Son redeem us? Why does the Son take us from dead in our sins to life abundant with him? Verse 12, into verse 12. Because it's to the praise of his glory, it's, it brings glory to God to redeem us. Why does the Spirit then seal us, seal our inheritance forever, that we might spend eternity with God? Why, why would the Spirit be given as a pledge, a guarantee for that? Verse 14, it, it's to the praise of his glory. It, it, it's about the glory of God. So we pull back from chapter 1, 2, and 3. Chapter four, five, and six, we put, why all these spiritual blessings? Why, why, why in the life worthy of his calling? Why would God engage us in relationship? Why would God care so much about us, what he gives to us and how we live in him? Why would all that be true? Because that, meaning you and I, are what bring God the greatest glory. Now listen, Satan's goal, his goal, is to diminish, deconstruct, and destroy God's glory. Where is God's glory on display? Where is it? In you and me. In believers who walk on the face of this earth. That's where God's glory is most revealed. That's where it's most beautiful. That's where it's most splendid. No better way to come after the God who expelled him from the heavens than to come after God's people on earth. The best way to get at God's glory is to attack his greatest glory. Those of us who were made in the image of his son, the pinnacle of his creation. He looked at all things he created. He said they were good. He looked at us and said, what? Very Very good. This is the pinnacle of my creation. You are fallen, yes. Fallen to sin, yes. Redeemed by the Son, yes. Even greater glory. If there were a way to diminish God's glory, apart from messing with his people, I'm sure Satan would try it. There is no better access to God's glory than through us. There is no fight against God's glory than to fight against God's glory that is shining in us. Does it bring glory to God when Jesus is proclaimed among his people? Does it? Of course it does. Then Satan's going to do all he can to distort that message. Does it bring glory to God when someone's life is so transformed that they just can't help but spill it out on everybody around them? Does that bring glory to God? 
Of course, then Satan's going to do all that he can. He's going to enable all his forces to scheme against that. To bring glory to God, to hear God's word teach, to see a missionary sent out, to see someone giving their lives away. Yeah, of course, then Satan will do everything in his power to hinder that. To deceive, to diminish, and to destroy those efforts. Satan hates the glory of God. And to hate God is to hate the one thing that he loves the most, his church. You want to know where Satan's at work? You want to see it with your own eyes? You want to you want to know why Satan comes against us? He wages spiritual war. Look no further than the place where God is most glorified in you and in me. Who is our enemy? His name is Satan. He's been around for a long time. How does he scheme against us? Deceit, lies, unique, customized approach to each and every single one of us. And why does he come against us? Because we, by the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reflect God's glory better than anything else. We are his greatest glory. That's why. The ancient Chinese warrior Sun Tzu taught his men to know their enemy. He taught them that before ever going into battle. He's, he's credited as the author of what is probably the most influential book ever on military strategy. It's called The Art of War. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu writes these words. He says, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you will not need to fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know yourself and not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. The same is true in spiritual warfare. If we don't know our enemy, we will not be prepared for battle and we will not like the result. Father, I realize that taking these three verses and going a bit deeper in understanding our enemy is a sobering reality. We don't leave here this morning all charged up. We don't. But I pray that we as a people would be able to sit in the angst of it this week. Be aware of how the devil schemes against us. Not that we would fear, but that we would understand just how much we need you. May we be a people who embrace spiritual realities, all of them, in embracing those spiritual realities of people who depend on you all the more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go in peace. Come join us back next week.